Communicating and presenting information is a core responsibility for statisticians and data scientists. Whether you are providing a summary of study analysis, proposing a new methodology or shaping the direction of a team, the ability to engage an audience and clearly communicate your thinking is critical to progressing work, advancing science and influencing project direction. But what it is that makes some presentations more impactful or engaging than others? Are some statisticians just more gifted presenters? Or is there a trick to delivering scientific or quantitative content that makes it more interesting? There are concepts and techniques that can make every statistician more effective and allow them to connect better with audiences. They will help you. In our upcoming free webinar, we will provide three actionable ideas along with specific examples to immediately improve your ability to give impactful presentations. Sign up for the webinar now. It happens on February 17th, 2021. Register now on statistician.com. You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske, designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today I'm talking with Jenny Davenport. Reflections on statistics, career opportunities in drug development and healthcare. A really, really good interview. I enjoyed it so much. So stay tuned and now some music. Do you need to give a presentation quite soon? Or maybe later this year? We will give a webinar on the 17th of February about improving your presentation skills with three very, very actionable topics for you to improve your presentation skills directly. So head over to theeffectivestatistician.com and sign up for this free webinar. It will be awesome, I'm pretty sure. And now to this podcast. The interview with Jenny was really, really nice. And she is a really great reflective statistician that has a lot of things to share about the career in, in our industry. And so stay tuned for this really, really good interview. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a communique dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the ever-growing video-on-demand content library, free registration to all the PSI webinars, and of course, with all the virtual things going on, there are more and more of these. Head over to the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode of the Effective Statistician. And today I'm talking with a colleague 
from Roche that actually works in very, very similar areas than I do. And um, so welcome to the podcast, Jenny. Thank you very much for having me today. It's a really a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and we just found out that you have actually listened to the, this podcast before. And so it's, it's always great to feature some uh, listeners here on the podcast. And so thanks for being here. Definitely. So I stepped over a LinkedIn article that you wrote recently. And uh, yeah, maybe that speaks to the importance of actually publishing something on LinkedIn and being more visible because that gives you more opportunities to uh, grow your influence and your exposure. But we're not talking about LinkedIn uh, publishing today, but about the content of this article because it was a really, really good reflection, I thought, on what the role of statistics is and how the... Um, career within statistics in the healthcare industry can be. And what are a couple of different points about it? And you make five really, really good points, which we want to talk uh, through today. So let's start with number one. Say you talk about getting comfortable with ambiguity. What does that mean? So I think... At least historically, a lot of people believe that, you know, when I start, I will be clueless and that's okay and I will figure things out and then it will always get easier from there. And of course, I think in our field, that is not necessarily true. That the, the whole idea is that you are answering questions that don't have an answer already. And so you start in this state of ambiguity and discomfort and chaos, and you move to a state of order. So, and this is going to be true no matter how long you're in the field. This is the nature of problem solving. And so I think it's about setting that expectation in your head that this is a recurring cycle that you have to embrace will help you not get overwhelmed yeah. um, and burned out at some point in your career to just understand that this is the cycle. And it has a beginning and an end. <laughs> yeah. And it start, it's a cycle. It starts again and again and again. I think there <laughs> is there's a constant change in our organizations. And yes. so as soon as you have thought, oh, now things are really stable, something will happen. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, either you get a promotion and you get a new uh, area that you work on and, you know, You have been successful in the past, but what brought you here doesn't help you in the next step. It's a good foundation, but it doesn't really help you to solve the new problems. And the other thing, of course, kind of internal things can change all the time. There's restructurings. The molecules that you're working on might, might die or, you know, be sold or whatsoever. So yeah. there's always changes. Yeah, no, and I think that is the fun part of our work too. But again, you have to see that for what it is, is it's an opportunity to be continuously learning. It's not that, you know, I've suddenly arrived and this is my destination. This is the cycle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think setting this expectation that you need to be ready to live and breathe this uh, ambiguity Is, is really important. It's also about, I think, making decisions under ambiguity. Mm -hmm. 
No, I, I think that's really important. You know, as a manager, when I see people struggle, it's it's because they think that things should be clear and step by step. And I said, but that but that's your job. Your job is to take that ambiguity and put it together. Yeah. It's yeah. just like data. Yeah. You can have, you know, mounds of numbers or you can have something neat and orderly and in a great visualization, for example. Yeah. And even then, you know, there's always, you know, uncertainty there. You'll mm-hmm. rarely have something black and white. There's yes. very often there's lots of different nuances in terms of, for example, if you're preparing a study, yeah, and you want to do some calculations for how many patients you need mm-hmm. and how sure you'll be that you'll reach the goals of that study. That's not a black and white answer. Also, you know, at, at university, we are giving this kind of, oh, you can af- assume an effect size of this and, and then you use this test and then you get the sample size job done. Yeah, and, and I think that's the reality is that the problems that are worth solving, it's not a cookbook, you yeah. know, manufacturing process. It is it is complicated. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and a surpri- you know, surprises come in and you also have to be able to communicate that level of uncertainty to your audience as well. Yes. Is this is our best guess. Yes. And yes. this is the probability that it could it could go another way. Yeah. And we won't know which one was right until after we collect the data. Yeah. That's, that's the nature of experiments. If you would know the outcome before, you wouldn't need that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you have that conversation in your career. People yeah. are surprised, but that, that, com- that exact conversation comes up in your career more than once. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You'll never, if you, if you have a career choice, for example, Do I stay here? Do I move on? Do I want to go more on the technical part? Or do I want to become a supervisor? All these (laughs) things are not black and white. Yeah. Right. The second point you make on your list is managing your energy. And I think that speaks already a little bit to the first one as well. If you are not ready with embracing ambiguity, that will take a big toll on your energy level because it will basically stress you out all the time. Um, But what else is there in terms of managing energy? So I think there's a couple of points that that I focused on. and, And one of them is when you're faced with a new problem, make a plan. And that plan should start out with making sure you understand what problem you are trying to solve. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you don't do that, you will be running around in circles, um, disappointing yourself and other people for a long time. And that's a waste of energy. And this is something that uh, data scientists and programmers and statisticians can run into a lot as they get super excited and they jump right in and they start playing with data. And if they would stop for a minute and remember what problem they're trying to solve, they wouldn't have to work so hard. Yes. And I'm not saying that you don't have to get into the data, but I have some brilliant examples of not getting into the data. And of course, the most famous one that has popped up uh, recently again is, you know, in World War II, um, sometimes scientists were asked to um, examine planes that had been shot up and see where yeah. to add more armor. And of course, the scientists said, well, you don't want me to analyze those planes because they were able to make it back. Those bullet holes are benign. 
I haven't seen the bullet holes on the sensitive parts of the planes because they're not here. Um, And I had a case like that in my career once where um, I got a call from the regulatory person at my company and he asked me to look at some incoming safety data to see if, um, if I could look at the device data and the safety data and see why there was an increased signal for a particular adverse event um, in the post-marketing environment. And this was a long time ago. And so they sent me the files, which were enormous and took a long time to download. And in the meantime, the same fellow was calling me back every 15 minutes. <laughs> and so I quickly realized I'm not going to have time for this methodical review of the data to look at it from every angle because they want an answer now. So I wrote down for myself, okay, this is what I can assess in 15 minutes, in the next 15 minutes, which was basically how many indications are affected. And then I thought about who might already know the rest because I wouldn't get to examine the rest of the data in 15 minute increments. And so I did the analysis and I made the phone call. And so 30 minutes later, I could give an answer that enabled the company to make a decision. Yeah. And I, I think that was a really nice way of saying, okay, this is the problem that I have to solve and this is the time allotted. I've got to make them connect. Yeah, yeah. Just recently, I was speaking uh, with some people about the design of a study. Mm-hmm. And um, I was saying, you know, there is the, the expectations here in terms of what, how, how secure we want to be and what we want to show as a study seems mm-hmm. to be really extreme, yeah? Mm-hmm. So I, I can't believe that this is really the hurdles that, that we need to jump over because that would mean that, you know, we would, you know, we would make directly a step from a, from a bicycle to a Ferrari, yeah? So, so it, it, and <laughs> to be honest, that rarely happens in pharma, yeah? And so um, I said, you know, we need to understand what's really the, the, the requests here. What is really the, the goals of the study? But meanwhile, the people, you know, just take that for granted and waste an enormous amount of work to get the perfect uh probability of success and the perfect uh, network meta-analysis and the perfect whatsoever, yeah? And so I think it's really, really important to um, first understand the problem deeply and check whether your understanding of the problem is correct. (laughs) And if you don't even know who the person is that presented this topic and said, is you know who you are helping with here, then you have a really big problem because how do you assess whether you actually meet their needs? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so um, for you know regulatory, that means to understand that what is really the regulatory environment, mm-hmm. what is the competitive landscape, what are the guidelines really saying? Not you know, what someone told you what they are saying, but right. what, the, what do they really say? Because otherwise you get just the, what someone heard someone said, yeah? That can be very different to what is actually written down. 
<laughs> and so um, has too often have heard like, but the FDA said this. And I said, hmm, what exactly did they say? <laughs> and yes. these can be major, major differences. Yeah. It is impressive what can get lost in translation. Yeah. Yeah. So understanding the problem first um, and then having a proximate answer to the right problem is so much more helpful to have a perfect solution to the wrong problem. Absolutely. Yeah. The other Absolutely. point you mentioned is the timing. That's mm -hmm. really, really good. So, so, so how did that yeah. go then further the story? So I I think, um, again, you know, it was obviously an urgent issue. Um, and 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 I I don't know that the first time they called, I appreciated that they wanted an answer, you know, in the next hour, yeah. uh, which was totally unreasonable for the volume of data they were sending. Yeah. Um, and I had worked closely with the development team on this product um, and I kind of knew that they would probably already know the answer. So when I started to realize what I could and could not do with, you know, mere statistical prowess, I realized I needed to make some calls and that it was very likely that nobody else had made those calls. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then just be very direct. And so I think that's, that is an important thing for statisticians who tend to be introverts and not the most comfortable reaching out to strangers is go ahead and ask the question it helps build alliances. It helps them know that, hey, I'm here to to work with you to get to the bottom of this, to get you an answer, um, to help us move forward. Yep. And so that's really important. Yeah, yeah, that's very good. You don't need to solve everything yourself if someone else has already yeah. solved it. Yeah. You know, early in my career, I worked in public health and I was the only statistician at the company. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so, you know, on the one hand, you think, oh, hooray, there's no one to check my work. And on the other hand is, oh, I better be right. And so <laughs> I remember the first time I did um, a propensity score analysis at this, you know, with this data and, and had a really interesting answer. I thought about all the papers I read and I reached out actually to some academics who were happy to check my work. And I was very organized. And I said, you know, here's the file. Here's this, make sure that the calculations are correct. And they did it, you know, and it was an hour of work that they did for free. Yeah. I don't know whether they would always do that, but I was working in public health and it was a long time ago and they did it and it was great. And then I could comfortably tell my manager, I am certain that this will not come back and, and be ugly for us that, you know, it has been checked by people with a better reputation than myself. Yeah. 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 That is always important if you get, interesting findings for sure yeah no and i think also too you know that's the danger of working in an environment where you're the only one in your specialty is you may not be challenged enough mm. and and if you don't create the opportunity for challenge you may not come up with the best answer you could so that that's an important thing for me is seek collaborators or at least Seek someone that you can bounce ideas off of. And they don't have to be another statistician or data scientist, but they do have to be somebody that can ask some good questions. What else about managing your energy? So I think um, 
sometimes, again, when you're developing that plan, you have to know when to do the hard stuff for the easy stuff first. You know, there are going to be times when you just need to build some momentum. And so then you should absolutely start with those easy things. You know, what can I do to check things off my list? And then that will enable me to tackle the next thing. And then there are other times when you've got something that's rattling around in the back of your brain and you realize that you're thinking about it all the time, but not actually doing anything about it. And you absolutely need to go ahead and tackle that so that you can regain your free time Mm -hmm. because it's not appropriate to be neglecting your kids or other leisure activities um, to to be thinking about this problem. You need to focus on it uh, when you can do something about it. And so that's probably a good hint that you better go ahead and get started. Yeah, absolutely. But how do you find time then to do this? Because, you know, lots of us are kind of in between meetings and emails and chat messages and whatsoever. So for me personally, I schedule everything. Mm-hmm. And I will, if I know I have a big problem that I need to solve, I block time on my calendar. Yeah. And and then I also look for backup time on my calendar when something comes up and my plan gets blown. <laughs> yeah. Yep. How it usually happens, but yes. it's, it's really good to plan in some buffer and to, yeah. you know, not completely occupy your, your calendar right. with meetings. And, and I think, you know, maybe another thing you're getting ready to talk about is understanding what's really important. Ah, yeah. So you can't plan on be successfully accomplishing 20 things in a day. So you better figure out which three are the most important and don't let those budge. And if those yep. are the ones that let you sleep at night, you've picked well. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's, that's a really good point. And also, if those are the ones that make you proud in the evening when you yeah. have ticked them off, that's also a good indicator. Yeah, yep. yeah. Understanding what's important. Yeah, that's, that reduces actually quite a lot of stress. When I was early in my career, I... I realized, you know, my, that my to-do list was getting longer and longer and longer. And there were all these kind of projects where, you know, there's was a little bit of here and a little bit of opportunity here. And I could improve further this. Yeah. Sometimes applying the 80-20 rule is, is actually quite nice. And, and saying, you know, this is good enough can go. Yes. No. And I think, I think you have to appreciate that that's essential. Yeah. Um, because if you play a short game... That's all you've got. <laughs> you have to be in it for the long game. Yeah. Being right is not enough is point number three. And this is a phrase that I used before myself. What does it mean for you? You know, again, I think of the times when working either when, when writing grants for funding by someone else or when pitching ideas in a big company where the best idea on paper was not the best, was not the idea that was selected to move forward. And this is something that can be very frustrating, particularly for very technical people who are very precise, is to understand, you know, why wasn't my idea selected to move forward? And so for me, being right about is not enough is about making sure that the way that you sell your idea to customers is oriented towards them because it really may be the best idea, but if they can't tell, it doesn't matter. It just does not matter. 
Um, so if you want to have your ideas selected, you need to take a step back and think about how to make it seem essential to your customers, which means really aligning with them on what they need and making sure that your solution delivers that. Yeah. It actually doesn't matter whether you think it's the best idea. Mm -hmm. It's whether the decision maker thinks it's the best idea because they they are always right. They always select the best idea that they think is the best idea. Yes. Yes. And and I think I think that's just something that when you get caught up in the details, you lose sight of. Yeah. Um, and so it's really important to step back and, and think about, you know, often the people making the money decisions are, are very high up the food chain. And so they don't care about all the details. They want to know about those three bullet points. And if you can't sell your idea in three bullet points, um, it, it's going to be an uphill battle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, completely agree. I just this morning wrote a, a LinkedIn post on start with the conclusions. Yeah, yes. that uh, it's it's not about you know that you have five minutes to speak about the backgrounds and then twenty minutes to speak about the methodology and then another twenty minutes to speak about the results and then you get to the conclusions. No, start with the conclusions, and that needs to be you know very very fast. And and if you have an idea that you want to sell, you know, needs to have this. If we do this, then you will get X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And that will have a big impact on the bottom line. Yeah. And yeah. And the nice thing to see is that's true in scientific presentations as well. Mm. Is you're seeing that more, or you were before we were in lockdown, you would <laughs> see that more in conferences if you walk the posters as people are putting the conclusions first. Mm -hmm. And then they're going through the introductions and methods. And I think that's really nice because you can decide quickly whether something is important that you need to stop and attend to as opposed to you know i've got 20 seconds to look at this poster and they're not getting to the point um, <laughs> and this yeah. graph doesn't make sense and you know yeah. if, if you can can um hit the high points early that makes a big difference i have a colleague who who works more on the marketing side of things and so she presents to executive committees a lot more and she is um quite internally famous for being able to take a 30-minute presentation and give it in 30 seconds and get the funding. Yeah. Um, and because it really comes down to she is prepared to go from 30 minutes or an hour to 30 seconds, sign this document, approve my budget, I will save you money, I will get you customers, whatever it is. Um, and that's a really important skill is that she can distill down the information to exactly what they need And they don't need to see more. And if they do, they'll ask her for it. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of, you know, generally we as statisticians are very detail oriented. And, mm -hmm. you know, for a lot of our job, we actually need to be detail oriented. Yes. But we need to also acknowledge that lots of other people are not wired that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lots of other people don't really care about the details. Yes, they want to see the, the, you know, the big strokes and, and, you know, just see kind of roughly are we going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And they just trust that you do all the things, you know, in the details right. Right. And, and that, I think that is an important statement that you just made. They still expect 
us to be detail oriented. They just don't want all those details. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, completely, completely. They don't want to participate in all those details, but they want them there. Yeah, you can you can still you know geek out with your stats colleagues about you know the statistical approaches and whether which kind of option you use in proc mixed or whatsoever. Yeah, but that's completely fine, and I love this too. Yeah, but mm -hmm. it's just not. When you speak with executives, when you need to sell your ideas, it's just not the right time for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's sim you know, that brings us actually very nicely to the fourth point that you're making. It's all about impact. Yes. What does that mean for you? So, you know, I think this is why I got into statistics is because I realized that I liked problem solving and I liked solving problems that would impact people's lives. And, and so it's really important to kind of have insight into what the answer to that question is going to mean for other people, because that's going to determine your impact. And so some people, when they look at a problem and they, you know, look at what techniques might be applied and stuff, and they don't get beyond that point to, you know, what's in it for anyone else. If you solve this problem, they miss the opportunity to have impact. You know, they just think, oh, this isn't a sexy enough problem. So for me, it's really thinking down the line, what will this answer do for other people? Uh, there's a famous story in, in science about a physician who was working with the United States Air Force to, um, devise a better vision testing system to select pilots. Because obviously someone can have very high visual acuity when they're reading dark letters off of a white chart in a bright room. Yeah. But what about when the lighting conditions change, when things are fuzzier and lines are less clear, like when you're in the air well above yeah. your targets, yeah. to be honest. And this guy developed a new test that varied contrast based on sine wave gratings. It's called contrast sensitivity testing. And unless you work in, in ophthalmology and in really a particular part of ophthalmology, you have never heard of this. You have never seen it and you've never been tested on it, but it works really well. And it worked really well for differentiating the visual abilities of two pilots that had exactly the same visual acuity. So it's a biologically plausible way to test patients or to test people. It's very reliable. And it's really good. And this guy was so pleased with himself that there's a photo of him holding the traditional Snell and Vision chart over the trash can. <laughs> and it never became a standard test in the ophthalmic community because this community wasn't really ready to move on to this new test and throw out the old one. So this amazing discovery never had its true impact, right? Mm -hmm. um, because, because it just neglected some, some essential pieces of information for their customer. Um, and so I think that's a big deal. Whereas one time in public health earlier in my career, um, I encountered an issue where the healthcare system I was working for was um, under a court order. They were being reprimanded basically for failing to notify its members about certain medical benefits and somebody had died. Um, and I worked, I worked for the company that did those notifications about people's benefits. And I found it kind of strange that, you know, hey, we're sending these. Why, why isn't this working? And so I dug a little deeper into the process and I found that there was a problem with the reminder process. So the budget for the company uh, didn't allow them to send out all the notifications that they were supposed to. 
And the list was sorted in alphabetical order. Oh my God. So A through M always got notified and N through Z were in the wind. And so by reordering the list to prioritize the neediest patients first, the sickest ones who hadn't seen a doctor in the last year, uh, we were able to completely address the issue. Problem solved. It's not a complicated problem. There was no statistics. It was a very low-tech solution, but it had an impact on hundreds of thousands of patients every year. So again, if I had held my nose up and said, this is not for me, I would have missed this opportunity. And so I think people have to, to be open to what comes yep. first yep. off. And yep. then later on, you can seek out opportunities that are of interest for you for the kinds of impact you want to have. Yeah, I think it's also when you select the projects, when you select the tasks that you work on, Mm -hmm. Look out for whether it really has an impact. Exactly. I was I was once finding myself in a in a call where there were, including myself, five statisticians. <laughs> and you can't believe how long they were talking about in a descriptive table whether the there should be mean slash SD, mean in parentheses SD or mean and the next row SD and so on. And, you know, I, you know, it doesn't matter here yeah. so much. Yeah. Just take our default and we're, we're fine with it. Yeah. yeah. And so then you waste a lot of time and energy on things that don't matter and you don't have enough time left for the things that really turns a needle. Absolutely. You know, so that applies to project selection, which again, you may not be great at when you're right out of school or you may yeah. be, um, but it also applies to how you spend your time in general. Um, if there's five other statisticians there, I don't need to be there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I, I exactly. trust them to do their job. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I see far too many meetings with far too many statisticians. It's, yeah. it's, Yeah. Yeah, completely agree. Your last point is also a really interesting one. And I already had a couple of podcast episodes where we were at least touching on it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is the question whether having a career in academia or in industry is, is the best choice. And mm -hmm. um, there's some people that actually switch backwards and forward. But mm -hmm. not so many. And of course, we have kind of a little bit of a bias because we all start out in academia you know, mm -hmm. through our education. So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, career so course? actually, it was an example here, you know, of people I had talked to here making incorrect assumptions about the difference between the two that, that really prompted the whole piece. Um, you know, I had dear friends or a fleet of interns who would make assumptions and, and, and they weren't correct. And, and so really, you know, they had made assumptions that, you know, one place or another would have better work-life balance. Um, that, you know, academia, the problems, you know, can go on forever. And so you'll be working all the time. And so if you work nine to five in industry, industry is always nine to five, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> 
<laughs> and uh, I, I thought I thought would have thought the perception is the other way around. <laughs> I found this interesting, but I actually saw it repeated over and over again in in discussions with interns that made assumptions about industry being a, a straight nine to five gig, <laughs> and and really again the the original person that I talked to that made that assumption. It, it was very to see, you know, she is the obsessed workaholic yeah. and she was going to do that anywhere. You know, she was going to be the one that slept in her office, whether it was at the university campus or elsewhere, um, because she didn't want to miss a moment on this problem. And and so I think you do have to know that about yourself going in and make choices. Right. Yeah. 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 And that's one piece. Um, and then, of course, there's the impact or influence. And where do you want to do that? And again, I think it's a choice. Yeah. But you have to kind of develop that experience to be able to know which choices to make. Yeah. And maybe people don't tell students that enough in school. Yeah. There's another point which I very often hear is about... Yeah, industry, it's all only about the money side. And, you know, and academia already really do the science part. What do you think about that perception? So, so of course, I have an opinion. Um, <laughs> and, and it's informed by not having worked in academia, but at least being able to compare working in public health with working in industry. There is more pressure to get to a solution that can be implemented when money is involved. That is the advantage of industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, is that in academia, you can work on a problem your whole life and the consequences of not finishing it may only impact you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But the consequences of not finishing the problems in industry uh, will will have ripples beyond yourself. And so I think, again, that might be one way to look at it. But again, this is an opinion that's only based on my experience where, I, I, you know, again, when you work in public health, you have sometimes limited ability to get to a really conclusive answer. And then you have to wait for the Congress or the council or whoever's going to decide to meet. And then they're going to pack it in with other things. And so it may be years and years and years until you see the results of your work. And so, again, I chose ultimately that I wanted to see the results faster. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So I think money is, you know, what presses things a lot in the industry. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's, of course, other pressure in academia. Like, mm -hmm. you know, the, the peer pressure is pretty mm -hmm. high. And the pressure to publish is really yes. high. And so there's a lot of interest at stake at every point. Yeah? So, yes. so I think, you know, you can't say, well, the only one is only interested in the truth and the other one is only interested in the money. I think exactly. everybody has a lot of personal interests all the time, irrespective yes. of where you sit. Yeah, and I think... Your intrinsic motivations will play out everywhere where you are. Yeah. So yes. if you're really caring about patience, then it doesn't matter whether you sit in industry or whether you sit in university. You'll exactly. strive to find the project where you can help the patients. 
and exactly. you will you know leave the companies that are not good and you'll also leave the departments or universities that are not uh, aligned with your values so and then the la last thing is it's never that black and white and in the end it's always about people you know there's not right. you can't say well the university of xyz is like this and mm -hmm. it's the same you know big pharma company a is not like that this you know thousands of people in there and um they may have a certain kind of you know culture but there's so much within company variation and maybe yeah. less between company and university variation yeah you know a colleague of mine challenged me on that she said you know it doesn't you know aren't some environments easier to navigate than others and i said not as a category yeah it all comes down to the people um, and we we do have to acknowledge that that you know, just like you know your manager can make all the difference in your experience at a company. I think you know again the leadership can make a difference, but also you can make a difference. Yeah. To take a, an example outside of statistics, I had a colleague um, come to me once, and and we hadn't caught up in a long time, and he wanted to show me two pictures from his vacation, and I said, well, sure. And he whipped out these photos of he and his son standing on the backs of camels in Egypt in front of the pyramids. Wow. I was not prepared. <laughs> and, and what was running through my mind was, how on earth does one think to do that? Because it's not like he had a concierge set up this tour for him. And it, I realized after a while, he chose he wanted to have this once in a lifetime experience with his kid. And so he went and did the work to figure this out and have this experience. And he has this photo um, and his son has this memory um, of doing this. And I think that shouldn't just apply to vacation. That should apply to the, the way that we you know, manage our own careers and the way we manage our lives is that we are purposeful. And we prioritize making those decisions, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's actually a very, very good summary at the end. It's the, the career is your choice. Yeah. It's not someone else, you know, who is responsible for it. It's not your supervisor. It's not your colleagues. It's certainly not your HR department. They are all not responsible. It's only you. That is responsible. And so make sure that you reflect on that. What are your values? What are your goals? What do you want to achieve long term? What makes you happy? What makes you satisfied uh, at work? We spend so many hours each day at work. And if you can't have fun at work, if you, you're, you're not motivated to do the work, and if you're, yeah, just drag about thinking, oh, I need to get up tomorrow morning to get to work all the time, <laughs> then that's probably not the right place for you. Absolutely. Very well said. Thanks so much, Jenny. That uh, was a pleasure to talk to you. And it's, it was great to exchange on that. And all the best with, with your next steps in your career. And I hope lots of people will really takes these uh, le five lessons into account in 
getting comfortable with ambiguity, managing your energy, acknowledging that being right is not enough, taking care about the impact that you have, and finally be clear that industry and academia is not just a black and white uh, decision and that there's lots of nuances in it. Thanks Great. so much. Thank you very much and good luck. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain, who helps with the show in the background. And thank you for listening. Head over to theeffectivestatistician.com to sign up for the free webinar on your presentation skills and to improve your presentation skills. So do it now so that you don't miss this really, really nice opportunity. You'll also learn about our new offer in terms of the new leadership program of the Effective Statistician. So, like always, reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician. <music>